Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. People are always fascinated with scams, con men. Like I had one friend, his name's Apollo Robbins. I, you know, Jay, we should get him on the podcast, but Apollo is probably the best pickpocket in the world. He could just... Uh, walk right past someone, and the next thing you know, you're not wearing your watch. You're, you're, he's got your wallet. He's got your ID. It's always fun seeing him in an action. One time we did something. I gave a, a talk, and he was giving a talk after me. And while I was giving my talk, he was quote unquote shopping in the audience, pickpocketing everybody. And then he gave his talk and kind of revealed all the things he had pickpocketed during my talk. I mentioned that because we're fascinated by people who are able to have these extraordinary skills. And sometimes they use these skills for not such good purposes, like con men, scams. So Pete Stegmeier is a friend of mine, uh, and he is an expert on scams and cons and heists. He does a podcast about this. We discuss his podcast, but we talk about some of his favorite scams and cons throughout history. How did they occur? Why did they occur? What are the skills involved? Such fascinating stories. You're going to learn about the biggest car theft ring in history in New York, how to steal the most valuable diamonds in the world, what kind of con man Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci was, and and how do North Koreans get so good at, uh, you know, hacking? So here we go. Enjoy. I want to talk about heists, scams, and cons. I've got the perfect person to do that. Pete Stegmeier has the podcast. I can steal that, which is about all the best scams and cons throughout history. Is that right, Pete? That's right. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating topic anyway, like true crime mixed with history, mixed with the art of the con. But like, what got you so fascinated you started a podcast on this? You know, I've always been obsessed with uh, and fascinated by heists and cons and things like that. I think actually like 
the genesis of that was I was like 15 and I like found one of my dad's playboys and there was an article in you there. You read the articles? I, I did. And that, like, he caught me reading the article about like this bank heist crew. That was, I think, one of those things where I'm like, wow, this is like, because I hadn't really seen any like any journalism like that and getting to like get those like really cool details about how concisely timed everything was. That kind of, I think, laid the foundation. And then right after that, like the Oceans movies came out and oh, yeah. just started a chain reaction. Have you ever thought about being like a detective or anything like that? I thought about it a little bit. I actually went to school for criminal justice and was uh, thinking about joining the NYPD after I got out of the army. But I pivoted a bit. And so now I work in cybersecurity because it's kind of the closest. When I do like penetration testing, it feels like it's the closest that I get to like cracking the safes and getting to do that, but in a cyber environment. What do you do in cybersecurity? Uh, So I work as a senior security engineer, so I do like a little bit of penetration testing, testing new systems and things like that. I work on uh, encryption. And then sometimes in my pastimes, I'll like enter like capture the flag contests and try to crack those digital safes and stuff. So I want to get to some of the biggest scams and cons in history, but like what's the biggest cybersecurity hack you've seen? Are we being attacked constantly by people from all over the world? We definitely are. And I think that 2020 and like forcing everybody to go remote has has really like kicked that into overdrive because now like without the office environments, like communication between people isn't isn't what it was. So it's easier to impersonate somebody online because you're not like sitting next to them at the desk to to verify that they're asking you to change the, you know, the invoice number or something like that. And so uh, cyber crooks are definitely like taking advantage of that and making our job uh, a little bit harder and more uh, more interesting. But I think the biggest cyber heist that I can think of right now is the Bangladeshi bank heist. Uh, and that actually went through our Federal Reserve. It was most likely North Korea, but it hasn't been 100%, uh, 100% attributed to them, but it was almost definitely North Korea. What they were able to do is there's a network that banks used to talk to each other called SWIFT. And so basically it's like if one bank sends a SWIFT message to another requesting $100,000 goes into this account, like banks don't really think twice about it because only banks can send those SWIFT messages. And so somebody was able to get into that system and produce about a billion dollars worth of false uh, SWIFT messages to be deposited into this bank account. And they caught it after about $80 million had already been transferred, and it went to a casino in the Philippines and has never been seen again. Now, if they call the casino in the Philippines, though, what does the casino in the Philippines say? Well, they, they basically, I mean, they, they kind of have a bit of plausible deniability. They're like, this is the Central Bank of Bangladesh, like, gave us the money. And, like, the, it's also, like, places where there's, like, not, like, not great, like, you know, legal, uh, like, extradition and things like that. So a lot of times, like, I don't think it was an accident that they went to a place like the Philippines. Doesn't the bank in the Philippines know where the money went? At that point, they just know that it's been withdrawn. And like, there's probably a couple other layers of complexity to that as far as uh, somebody like going to get it and probably having it laundered through the casino pretty much immediately. But I always wonder about this. Like, let's say someone, you know, is getting their money out of the U.S. somehow and it goes through the Cayman Islands and it goes to a Swiss bank and then it goes through. Can't they ultimately trace all the money? Like, can't they find, call up each bank and say, where did you send this money to? Or as a, at some level, does the bank not know? Or, or like, what happens? I, I think at, 
at a point, there, there's just so many transactions that it's just like, it's more of a volume problem. And like, if they really needed to go like granularly, like I bet they could, but it would just be such a strain of like resources and, and ability. Um, but there are also like a lot of like more sophisticated, like laundering techniques and things like that. So some of it, you're just flat out not going to see. Like what? Like some of it is like uh, structuring and stuff like that. That's, that's usually a little bit smaller uh, as far as like, depositing in amounts that are less than $10,000 or withdrawing in amounts that are less than $10,000 because then you don't have to like fill out the paperwork on that. So then there, there's not really that paper trail. So, so I'm just trying to figure out like, let's say I'm, um, I'm taking money out of the country. Like I know all the transactions that happen in my bank account, for instance, at, at like this Philippine casino, don't they know who withdrew the money, the $80 million uh, and where it went? So sometimes they do. Sometimes it's going to depend, I think, a little bit because I think you have to look at like the possibility that they know and don't want to tell anybody. So if it's if it's somebody like North Korea that's withdrawing because North Korea has like a uh, a very prominent criminal enterprise, like most of the money they make is illicitly, um, and so I think that uh, when there's state actors like that, like it makes it a little easier for them to say like, don't say where this came from. But won't the U.S. say to the Philippines, listen, if you don't tell us where that 80 million went, we're not going to give you a billion dollar stealth fighter jet. Yeah, they, they definitely could say that. Um, and like that's that's kind of I, I do think it's interesting how like geopolitics can play into that. Um, but I think at the same time, like North Korea could probably threaten to be like, OK, well, if you do this, then we'll you're within missile range of like the ones that we have that work. So I'm I'm curious how much of that back and forth is is going on and how how that like in, informs people's decisions to be quiet. Or like after 9/11, it came to light there was a bunch of people shorting the airlines like on September 10th, 2001. You know, they were betting against the airline stocks and they made a huge amount of money and the money went to them. Uh but nobody knows who it was. And so I always wonder like why can't it's all computerized? Why can't they just trace the trail there? You know, that's that's a really good question. I, I think, again, that it kind of comes down to, uh, to resources, kind of like when you're like encrypting something. Like, uh, you could have you know, a very sophisticated encryption thing, and somebody can put all the time and energy into like, solving that math problem. Eventually, like, time and resources are going to be the, the deciding factors in that. So I think for a lot of that, I think for a lot of that, it's going to... Um, that's going to kind of impact it. Like if somebody really wanted to, they might be able to, but a lot of, a lot of times, like there's going to be, you know, shell companies within shell companies. And then the companies disappear and shut down and exactly disappear somehow. Exactly. And then like, you might like some, one of them might be registered in a country with like no, you know, information or extradition laws. And so now you're kind of at a dead end unless you like fly to Cyprus and find the banker who happens to, to know it. It just, it becomes a uh, kind of like an a, a attrition of resources uh, kind of problem. How do the North Koreans get to be such good hackers? Like, like I could understand U.S. people being good hackers or people from, let's say, even China or India or Russia. But where is North Korea getting their education on hacking? So a lot of times they're actually exporting people. Um, they're sending people to places like China uh, because China typically has a vested interest in keeping North Korea as a strong ally in the in the area, um, and they're also like 
uh, North Korea like send, I know they sent Kim Jong-un to, uh, to like private school in like Switzerland. So they're not above like sending people out to, to get some of that information. And then also just taking the, the limited resources that they do have and using that to like really create aggressive training programs and things like that for their hackers because they are limited in their ability technologically, but pretty much anything that they can teach people to do, they're, they're able to, uh, to teach people and they just have like really effective and stringent training programs. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I guess they hold the families hostage a little bit. So it forces the students to, after they learn hacking, to come back to North Korea. Exactly. Exactly. Like there's a lot of like familial things. There's a lot of things in North Korea too, where like there's generational punishment. So like if my dad stole something in North Korea, then I would also serve a jail sentence for that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's no good. So, so, okay. Scams in history. And I know in your podcast, you've covered a lot of these, but let's, let's talk about some of those episodes that you've covered so well. What would you say is the most um, stunning, amazing scam slash con in history? Other than selling like the Eiffel Tower, oh man, I was actually uh, I was actually going to mention uh, Victor Lustig selling the Eiffel Tower because he did I, it twice. Yes, and I and I've actually covered that one. And uh, have you read um, Maria Konnikova's book on uh, con men? It's a very good I, book. I have not yet, but uh, I I know that you recommended it on Twitter, so I actually have it in my Amazon cart. Yeah. So yeah, what's 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 the one that Leonardo da Vinci did? You had a podcast episode about that. I, I did. Um, so Leonardo da Vinci and uh, he actually teamed up with Niccolo Machiavelli. They were working for the city of Florence at the time and uh, the Medici family. And their their chief rival was Pisa because at this time in history, like Italy was just like city states, and so. Pisa and Florence were economic rivals, but Pisa had a slightly better advantage because they were like closer to the ocean and could do like shipping to facilitate their trade and things like that. And so the plan that uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Machiavelli kind of like worked on together was stealing the river that the two of them shared and redirecting it. So it went directly from Florence to a series of canals to the ocean. Oh my so gosh. How do you, okay, so go ahead. So basically what they were going to do is this was going to like allow Florence to have like an excess of water that they could sell and create more crops with and, and things like that. And also kind of starve out the Pisans. And at the same time, uh, like these, these canals and things like that were going to uh, like, cause basically that was how Leonardo had planned it. He created a bunch of series of uh, tunnels and plans and things like that for, uh, for canals and redirection of the water to just kind of like go right past Pisa. And they were, they were really close to pulling it off. Uh, but they hired an engineer who like thought that he knew better than Leonardo da Vinci. And so instead of digging one giant deep trench, he dug two shallower trenches and they couldn't hold the water when it was redirected and the dam blew and the river went back to its natural course. Can you imagine the gall of thinking you're going to steal an entire river? <laughs> I know. I like they almost got away with like they were also under attack because at this point like Pisa went to war with Florence and so they were sending people to sabotage and that's kind of why the engineer was in a hurry to to get this done because they were under constant attack but So wait, how are they going to do it? How would you how would you reroute the river again? Like how would you so they were actually going to, uh, they had like series of uh, like miles long tunnels and basically canals to redirect from one of the forks, like where it passes near Pisa and kind of redirecting it directly to the ocean. 
So, but how? What would the, what would you do? Put like a dam underwater to 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 basically block the flow of the river, so it would go out in another direction. Yeah. So they actually had to dig like a bunch of a like a series of trenches, and they would like redirect it into this one so that they could like kind of like move the natural riverbed, and then move it like you know fifty feet to the left, like a month later to to do the same thing. And so they basically had to continually move the river in like increments to be able to to dig it. And then they could like blow the walls or release the dams and send the water down the the new course. It's interesting. You never think of like Machiavelli and Da Vinci teaming up for some, you know, it's almost like a supervillain <laughs> kind of caper. Like it they, is. Were, they were like the league of evil supervillains in back in the you know 1400s or 1500s exactly it's really cool i mean it's kind of i don't even know who like the the real world equivalent of uh machiavelli would be today but like it's like if Littlefinger from game of thrones teamed up with like elon musk or tony stark yeah that's funny um so so but they failed at that what was one that um tell me about uh min john yang the world's most successful, one of the world's most successful car theft rings, stealing thousands of cars and then from New York City. Awesome. So, uh, so Min Zhang Yang, he uh, he actually was in the Chinese Army, and he he spent a few years as a, an intelligence officer. And his his job in the Chinese Army was dealing with finding and arresting smugglers. That kind of made him very good at understanding how smugglers operate and who the main people are. So after he got out of the army he actually approached the Chinese underworld and said, hey, like, I want to go steal a bunch of cars. Uh, if you help me with like, logistics and stuff like that on the Chinese side, I can go to New York and start up a team to, uh, to start facilitating these cars. Because at the time, uh, this was early 90s to 2000s, China had importing bans on a lot of things. So you couldn't, like, you couldn't really... Like go out and buy, for example, like a Lamborghini or something like that, because there was a trade embargo. But if you were like rich enough to like get one somehow, they didn't really ask any questions. And so there were corrupt officials in the Chinese government who these like wealthy buyers would go to and say, "Hey, I want to buy you know this brand new Lexus," and then they would go out to uh, to Min Jin Yang, who was in New York, uh, give him the specs, and he would he would have it to him within six weeks. And the way he did that. Uh, was once he got to New York, he like set up a fake identity as like a struggling immigrant named Kenny. Uh, and he lived in like a little basement apartment in like Flushing, uh, drove like a little hoopty Honda Civic or something like that. And so he was like really selling this character. And then he goes and uh, brings one of his other like friends from China in to manage like the warehousing of it. So they, they set up a warehouse in Brooklyn and then they go and find a team of car thieves. And... Uh, they they find one guy uh, that they just called Dean at a car show. And he's like, yeah, I, I know somebody that could actually help with this. And that guy's... No, wait, how do they find... Like, how do they know to trust him? How do they, how do they get hooked up in New York? Well, how did Kenny, quote unquote, get hooked up when he got, once he got here? So, so Kenny had a couple contacts, um, most likely with uh, Chinese underworld authorities in New York that kind of knew some of the... Uh, some of the places to to go, but also he he kind of used his like intelligence background uh, to be able to uh, to source some people as well, uh, because a lot of times he he was like when he was working for the Chinese government he was um, you know busting people that were smuggling cars so he kind of knew some of the people anyways. So he knew kind of like which body shop 
to go to, checked out a bunch of places, and he, he knew what red flags to look for to see, oh, they're probably doing something illicit. And then he could slyly ask, but how did he know that they weren't like FBI or something like that, like re- ready to catch him? I think at some point there's just like a leap of faith. Like I think he like, although I will say to be fair, like he was very, he was very, um, very into counter surveillance and counter security. So he would have like networks of cameras and watchers like set up around all his operations. Uh, and he, he actually had like a very sophisticated uh, process after the car was stolen to, to get it ready for shipment to make sure that nobody was like following it and stuff like that. So I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure how he knew right off the bat that he could trust Dean. Um, but I imagine that it's like some sort of combination of like knowing people from those circles from his military experience and also being connected with people uh, working with the Chinese underground once he was in New York. What happens next? So basically he tells Dean that he wants to basically like start a luxury car theft service to sell to China and that he was going to need a, a team of like seven or eight people to, to be able to handle that much uh that that much car theft and dean knows a guy named mario lopez who is uh not going to be the colonel sanders in that uh that new movie uh different mario lopez mario is the leader of a gang of sophisticated new york car thieves and so basically they all start working together and uh one of the things i think is really cool is minjin yang and mario lopez they don't they don't know each other uh, they they go through Dean, so he's building in a couple layers of protection, and then the people that work for Mario don't know about Dean. Like so, everything has everybody has like their person that they report to, but that way, like if a low level person gets arrested, they can't go right to the top of the organization and say I was working for this guy. So eventually, like they they get their operations together, they get a warehouse together to process the cars once they're stolen, and then they just basically get the list from, from the Chinese buyers and start uh, checking out parking garages, uh, affluent neighborhoods, like they go to Westchester a lot, uh, parts of Long Island, and once they saw a car that met the requirements that they wanted, uh, they, would, they would actually break the driver's side window, uh, crawl into the car, connect to the car's computer, because at this point, like, uh, computerized cars were were pretty new because this is uh, 90s and 2000s. And then they could actually just reset the car's computer to think it was in dealership mode. And at that point, it would disable the alarm. You could open it. You could do whatever you wanted with it. And then it would actually drive it to another neighborhood, like another affluent neighborhood where it wouldn't seem out of place. They'd leave it for a couple days. They would like scan it for like GPS trackers and things like that. And then they would come back for it and drive it to their warehouse in Brooklyn. And they would do like a couple laps around there to make sure they weren't being followed. I see. So that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that, that's smart. So just in case there's some weird GPS thing they can't find that would lead the cops right to their warehouse, they would leave, drive it to the other neighborhood, probably watch it 24-7 because it could be the case that the cops, knowing what they're doing, the strategy of leaving it in the other neighborhood, the cops also could be watching it as opposed to just retrieving it. So exactly. So they have they- to watch it for a while. Yeah, they usually would do like two to three days of like letting the car cool down. And then if it wasn't like recovered or wasn't taken by police at that point, they uh, they could pretty safely assume that they weren't looking for it. Hmm. And then 
uh, they would take it into the, uh, once it was safe, they would drive it into the warehouse or they would park it like a couple blocks from the warehouse. And then Dean or Mario were the only two people allowed to drive the car into the warehouse. And then from there, like they would fix the, fix the windows, fix the paint, and basically get it into showroom condition, load it up into a semi-trailer. Um, and the warehouse like, was, uh, they disguised it to make it look like a food company. So they would just like say, oh, this, this uh, trucking container is full of, uh, full of lettuce and crab legs. And then they would like fill out the manifests, uh, include like the, the real manifest. They would like basically drive it to New Jersey, get it on a train, uh, and then once it was on the West Coast, it would be intercepted in the East China Sea by like a real smuggling ship. And then they would have like the real manifest to be able to make the switch. It was pretty sophisticated. And nobody would question the crab legs going to China. Like they, they never had one of their um, train cars, you know, uh, just randomly investigated. No, because sometimes they would fill some of the stuff. Like, and they did this with the warehouse as well. Like if you open the door to the warehouse, it was like uh, they put a bunch of like food boxes and stuff like that near the entrance. So it just looked like food. Uh, and so they would kind of do that. And they would also make sure that they match the weight. So if you've got a 5,000 pound car, they would say that there's 5,000 pounds of cra- uh, crab legs or something like that. So the weights were always exact. And that was, uh, that was usually the biggest, uh, like the biggest thing, like if the weights were off, then the, then it might be more closely inspected. But if the weights matched, then uh, they typically got waved on. And, and also if any of the car thieves were caught, Probably couldn't trace back to Mario, Ding, or quote-unquote Kenny. Exactly, exactly. So there were a couple layers of separation in there. And they actually, uh, after a while, like things are going so well that they decide to scale up. And they start a new scam where instead of stealing one car at a time, they go to a dealership and steal seven or eight cars at a time. Uh, And so basically Mario or Dean would go to a dealership, say they want to test drive the new Mercedes, and then watch where the salesman went to go like, grab the keys. And then once they knew where like that key lockbox was, they would just come back a couple days later, break into the dealership, open up the lockbox, have the keys to all of the floor model vehicles and could just drive them directly to the warehouse. Wow. So, uh, but those, you don't, you think the floor models, they didn't have any GPS on them. Um, so for those ones, they, because they had the dealer keys, they were able to disable all of that stuff. Ah, um, because they were able to basically just tell the tell the car via the computer that uh, everything could be turned off because it was in the dealership. But what if I had a separate device that was like under the car that was a GPS tracker? Uh, they, I mean, they might. I imagine that they probably like searched for that as well and did like a at least a a quick scan. Yeah, um, I guess you could probably scan to see if something on the car is sending off a signal. Yes. So. Uh, but then, though, when you're stealing seven or eight cars from dealerships, probably insurance companies are getting involved now. Yeah, uh, I mean, at this point, like uh, cops are definitely a little bit more, a little bit more like on the lookout for it. And they actually ended up getting caught because on one of their dealership thefts, one of the drivers rear-ended another car on the Triborough Bridge, mm-hmm. and then the police are able to pretty quickly figure out, okay, this car is stolen, and then from there they were able to to kind of pinch him. And he only knew his like next level supervisor, uh, Mario. And then Mario didn't say anything. Uh, like he wouldn't like turn on Dean or anything like that, but they were able to, uh, they were able to um, basically figure out who the players were by tracking cell phones. And this is, I, I actually like this story a lot because it's like a good example of like thieves and police, like 
constantly like trying to outsmart each other. And so they would constantly like the, the thieves would constantly like uh, change their SIM cards and use burner phones and stuff like that. But they noticed that some of them kept calling like the same numbers who were like their wives and girlfriends. And so the, and then the only other numbers that those phones contacted were this like, this like small cluster of, of phones. And so that was kind of how they were able to, to piece things together. And then they could, uh, they eventually like got Dean's phone number uh, through, uh, through kind of this, uh, this big data dump of, of phone numbers. And then they did a surveillance call for, uh, for Dean and just kind of watched him for like six months. And eventually they were able to raid the warehouse. But at this point, uh, Ninjing Yang knew what was up. So he, he had abandoned the warehouse and he took off. How did he know what was going on? Uh, because he he was he was kind of a suspicious person to begin with, and he also had a lot of counter surveillance stuff going on. Mm. Uh, and there's also a really good possibility that some of his contacts were also within the New York Police Department. Yeah, because he probably had a lot of money to throw around too. He had all of China's smugglers funding him, and how much money by this? I mean, he'd stolen thousands of cars. How much money by this point had he made? Uh, Reports are saying close to forty million. Okay, which is which is pretty good. And then uh, over up, over how long a time period was this? Uh, this was about eight to twelve years. Okay, uh, so it was pretty good, and it was just growing faster now that they were doing dealers. But what was the point for him if he was still going to live just in like a basement apartment and and not really live a, a you know a life of of ease? Um. You know, that's a, that's a good question. I think that it was basically a temporary thing for him. He was like, okay, I'm going to make my money. I'm going to do this for a bit and then probably train somebody and, and get the money. And eventually, like, he does get arrested uh, because after they arrest, after they, like, storm the warehouse, uh, they, keep a, they keep monitoring Dean's phones. And he, he lays low for, like, six months and eventually says, like, eventually Kenny comes back and calls him and says, hey, uh, I've been off the grid for like six months at this point, but I've got an order for like 250 cars. And then they were able to, to go in and arrest him. And then he got deported to China and pretty much got to keep all his money. Wow. So he didn't go to, he didn't spend any time in jail here? Uh, just, just for like the trial and stuff like that. And then he was pretty quickly deported. How come they don't keep him in jail here? Why do they just deport? That's a good question. Like, I think some countries will try to get people extradited. Some, some don't really care. So I, I have to imagine that maybe like China also requested for him to, to come over. Yeah, because maybe he, yeah, so China was involved somehow in the whole thing. And did Dick flip? Like, was he working for the FBI? He did not flip, but uh, he didn't flip willingly, at least. Like, he, uh, they were able to, to use him to get to everybody, but he didn't, uh, like, he did not, like, flip for a deal or anything. So it's interesting because one thing I see in common with, schemes like this. And so I, I interviewed once uh, Freeway Rick Ross, not the rapper, but the guy who the rapper is named himself after, which was the largest crack dealer of the 80s. He basically sold about a billion dollars worth of, of crack from, uh, you know, Inglewood, you know, in LA. And nobody knew who he was. Like he had a hierarchy like that, where at each level of the hierarchy, nobody knew who was above this person in the hierarchy. And he was a very mild-mannered guy. So you couldn't, in a street, you wouldn't be able to pick him out and say, oh, this is the, a billion-dollar crack dealer. Like, he lived a, lived a pretty low-key life. I, th- I think that's the way to do it. Like, I, I think that's usually the mistake that a lot of, 
uh, a lot of like heisters and, and con people make is all of a sudden they start living beyond their means. Yeah. And honestly, like that's one of the things that I really admired about uh, Lady Gaga when she like came out of the scene, like, because like her, her outfits and her hair and stuff like that was like ridiculous. So you couldn't like not see, Oh, this is Lady Gaga. But if she just like went out like normal, you had no idea who she was. And so she got to be like, anonymous and the world's biggest superstar all at the same time. And I thought, it, I always thought that was like genius. And I think, I think more criminals need to employ that if they're gonna <laughs> the Lady Gaga caught. effect. Well, but that's interesting because to some extent to be a successful at what, at, at, like, to be a successful Min Ying Yang, he had to become Kenny. He had to perform. He had to become a new persona and he had to, he had to concoct the whole story, his whole kind of reason for being to do this. So it's interesting how the, the connection, you have to basically be a performer to some extent. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And uh, like, especially so with con men, like there's like some heisters and stuff like that, that kind of just prefer anonymity, but like the con men, especially like, really have to create usually multiple personas and like personalities and ways to, to get people to feel comfortable enough to trust you with information and then using that information to exploit them one way or another. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial 
when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. How does one become an arms dealer? And what does this have to do with scams? This was actually a fascinating uh, story. And there was a movie, it was War Dogs with uh, Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. And Basically, it tells the story of these two guys who are, are pretty young, and one of them played by Miles Teller in the movie. He's like a rich kid, and his dad actually owned like a police supply company. And so he kind of had a little bit of an inroads to, uh, to arms dealing that way because he could sell guns and ammunition to police departments and stuff like that. And so when the Iraq War and the, the Afghan War, like when the surge really hit, um, we were... Basically, the government had to outsource a lot of the war to private companies because we just couldn't we couldn't do it on our own. And this this ended up like opening the floodgates to uh, it was a site where businesses could see open security contracts or open logistics contracts and make bids. And then whoever had the lowest bid would typically be rewarded the contract, and they didn't really care how how those contracts were filled. How, how do they get the, so, okay, so they saw us, well, first off, do you need security clearance to be able to see these bids? Because if I'm like an Afghan warlord, it's pretty interesting to me to also check out this website to see what the U.S. is uh, buying. Yeah, at the time, you absolutely didn't. There were some contracts for, for you know, like your Raytheons and like your precision missiles and stuff like that, that, that had like classifications and stuff like that. But a lot of these were buying guns and ammunition for like the Iraq or Afghan armies. And so at that point, it's just like, we need 200 million AK-47 rounds. And they don't care who can do that. As long as you can get them and sell them to them and they meet like XYZ criteria, you're good to go. And so anybody, basically anybody that like wanted to register a small business with the IRS and then had an internet connection to make the bids could make bids. So potentially... I could go to my local gun dealer and say, listen, just tell me what the price is, you know, commercial for an AK-47 bullet. And he might say, one bullet is $20. I'm just making this up. I have no idea. And then they need $250 million. Okay, I'm going to make a $5 billion uh, uh, bid. I'll, I'll bring it down a little bit. I'll do a $4 billion bid, probably beat everyone else. 
So then I then they'll call me in for a meeting because I just made a a, a four billion dollar bid. I'll get you two hundred fifty million rounds for four billion dollars. They call me in and I'll say, yeah, I can get it. I know all the um, manufacturers of AK forty seven bullets, and they say, okay, contract's yours. Something like that would happen. Yeah, pretty pretty much. Like, uh, and a lot of times, like the the way that these two guys ended up getting so uh, some of these contracts was they started with small contracts to kind of get like a good seller reputation, kind of like on eBay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then after that, they uh, like they just grossly underestimated like the bloat of uh, the military industrial complex. And so, like, there was one where they submitted uh, on the last day that the bid was open. This this would be like. Uh, like their biggest deal. I think it was like $250 million or something like that. And they were like, should we drop it down to like a 7% profit versus an 8% profit and maybe give us the edge? And they were the cheapest by like $50 million, mm-hmm. which is why they got the, the contract to begin with. They're like, wow, you guys were like so much cheaper than everybody else. And then that ended up kind of causing their undoing because the only way to get that many bullets was for them to break international laws and uh, smuggle them in from like Armenia and things like that. Uh, which at the time were technically prohibited. So wait, so yeah, so how would they get like large amounts of firearms? Like, first off, why doesn't the U.S. government just call the manufacturer of the bullets to 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 buy them? Um, because at the time, like, there were a lot of a lot of like trade embargoes. So most of most of these uh, like bullets and stuff like that were already made. So the companies weren't making them new, but they they were either Chinese or Soviet Union era bullets, and the the. And it was like kind of one of those things where like the government knew this, but they were just kind of looking the other way and having these bids is like a bit of plausible deniability. I see. So everybody who was fulfilling these, everybody who was submitting a bid knew they were going to have to do something illegal to get them. Yeah, pretty much. Or that they were most likely going to. And these guys ended up uh, going to a, like an arms show, uh, like kind of like Comic-Con, but for, for like warlords and things like that. And they met one of the the bigger arms dealers on the planet who had access to all the stuff. And then they were able to work with him to fulfill the contracts. So they were like front men for him almost. Yeah, exactly. Like he couldn't like, because he was like on the gray market. So he couldn't deal directly with the United States. The United States couldn't be seen dealing directly with him. But if they use these guys as middlemen, then they could both, you know, make their money, do their thing and technically say, well, how could we know that these guys were skirting the rules. So what, what did they do? Like, what was their undoing? There were a couple of things that were their undoing. They knew that they were uh, breaking international law and selling bullets that shouldn't be sold. I think most of the ones that they had were actually of Chinese manufacture. Uh, and there was like a trade embargo and they couldn't, like the contract specified that they couldn't be from China. And so one of the guys actually goes to Albania and hires a box company to repackage all of these like millions of bullets uh, so that they don't say like made in China. But then they didn't pay that guy. And so eventually he ended up being one of the people uh, when they screwed him over that was like, oh yeah, here's, here's where all the skeletons are buried. Well, why did they pay him? I think they just didn't think they had to, or they just like, cause I, I think a lot of times, like when you're getting that, that kind of like money and power for the first time, like you just feel invincible and that that happens so many like there's so many heists and things like that where somebody gets undone by like an ex-girlfriend that they wronged or some guy that like they didn't pay their taxi driver and he calls the police or something like, that. like there's i don't know why that's uh why that's like a trope among uh like con men and thieves but that's they get caught like that a lot it's also i always wonder this like 
$250 million deal. You said this is their largest and they're making like a 7% profit. But like, let's say their other three deals that they did were $100 million deals. And they, so they made 21 million between them and they're splitting 10 each. I always wonder like, why do people keep going when there's so much risk? There's not only there's physical risk because you're dealing with a lot of bad people and you're dealing with guns, but there's also this legal risk and you've already made 10 each. How much more do they need in life? You know, that's, that's a good question. I, I never understand why, why people do that either. Like it's, it's kind of like when you're at the casino, like eventually, like it's fun to let it ride, but eventually like, even if you're playing with house money, like take it and go home. Like I, I, I don't get that. I think it's just, maybe at that point, it's like an adrenaline thing. Like I, I deal with like a lot of adrenaline addiction, like from, from my time in the army and I'm always like chasing like that thrill. So maybe, maybe with these guys, it's the same thing where they're engaging in riskier behavior and they know they should stop, but they can't because they, they want that excitement. Have you ever thought of writing like a, a novel, like a heist sort of novel? Uh, I'm actually, I'm working on a, uh, not a novel right now, but it's, it's like a nonfiction book about heists. Um, mm-hmm. But I would, I, I have been thinking a lot about like writing like a screenplay for, uh, for like a heist, uh, like some sort of like buddy heist comedy kind of thing. Or even like this Da Vinci Machiavelli thing. Definitely. Or the Kenny story. Yeah. So, you know, actually you, you talk a little about in, in your episode 25, you talk about psychic mediums. I'm always curious, like, in today's computerized age, like a, uh, this was a few years ago, a friend of mine went to see a psychic in Virginia. I think it was like my friend drove all the way down there with her, her, her sister. They, they both went. And this medium who apparently, so my friend says, never met them before and said all sorts of like amazing things that were incredibly accurate. Like how do they pull that off? Like clearly it's a scam. But how does the medium pull that off if they don't? And again, I'm trusting my friend that the medium did not know their name and who they were before they got there. But maybe my friend was wrong. I don't know. Or maybe my friend misrepresented it. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Like, there's, there's definitely, uh, definitely levels to this. Um, my wife actually saw a medium uh, a couple, couple months ago that she, like, said some things that it was like, like, even, even though, like, I'm good with the internet, like, I don't think I could have found that stuff out. So, yeah, there's, there's, like, levels to that. Because, like, when you have, like, a guy like John Edwards, right, and you're, like, bringing people on TV, he's, he technically doesn't, like, ask you questions beforehand about things. But he, you do have to fill out questionnaires about, like, what you're hoping to get from it, who you're hoping to talk to. And so... Like for him too, like he's cold reading and there could be two or 300 people in the room. So eventually something's going to hit and it only has to hit for one person to, to blow everybody away. Right. Like, so if you, if you, have, if you have 200 people or 500 people in the audience and you say, does someone have a sister named Denise, then A, someone's going to say yes. And B, Denise is kind of a dated name. So you'll know roughly, you know, where and when, you know, they're probably from, I don't know, either Long Island or the Midwest or whatever. And from 19, you know, they were born in the 1950s. I'm just making this up, but you, you start to know things from the cold read. Exactly. And that's, that's like their biggest, that's going to be their biggest methodology is like that cold reading and also being able to pivot. Like, so if you say like, does somebody have a sister named Denise? Somebody might raise their hand and be like, I have a sister named Denise, but she's not dead. And then from there, you can just kind of be like, okay, but you, your grandmother is. And she said, you know, be careful, like take care of Denise or something. 
like you can pivot and like make it believable. Um, and it doesn't really matter what the information is coming at you or what information you get. Like you can always kind of spin that uh, and kind of be vague about it. And Right, because if you've done this thousands of times, obviously the person going to you is going to you once, but the medium has done it thousands of times. And as we'll, we'll, we'll use comedy parlance. So by the way, listeners, I know Pete from stand-up comedy and, and Pete's a regular performer and stand-up comedian at, at the club I co-own, Stand Up New York, a very good comedian. And uh, uh, when you do something thousands of times, you know kind of like the exact words and tone and inflection to get a certain response from your audience, in which case this is the client of the medium. So what do you think are the techniques of the, of the cold reading? So I, I think a lot of them are going to be uh, taking advantage of the fact that just like in stand-up comedy, like your audience wants you to succeed. Like when I step on stage, people want me to be funny. If they're on the, the edge of like laughing or not laughing, chances are they're going to laugh because they want me to be funny. And then from there, they can kind of be like, oh yeah, he is funny. And then there's like a confirmation bias. And they kind of do the same thing. Like they'll start small and then they can kind of laser focus in on that as the momentum goes. And then like as the suspension gets or the disbelief gets suspended more and more, you can, you can go further and further. Yeah. So I see. So once they start getting into a lane where they know they're like, Oh yeah, my grandma was like, was what was worried about Denise. You could start playing into the grandma. Like I see her. And so when someone says their grandma and she's dead, you know, roughly, okay, maybe she's born in 1919 or whatever. And um, so, you know, the grandma was a teenager during the depression and, uh, and on and on, you start to figure things out. Like, are there anything, is there anything like kind of in a cold, in a cold read that's like a poker tell or like, or like an audience read that the comedian does like, cause you know, it's funny actually, now that I think about it, a comedian often does a cold read of an audience. Like you look at a couple and you could kind of, you start to build a portrait in your head or a story in your head of, okay, this couple looks like they're on their third date or their fourth date. Probably they met in Tinder. Probably they haven't slept together. You know, you start to build like a whole story for the people in the audience. Like, oh, here's some tourists from England visiting New York, but it's not Christmas. So maybe it's a work-related trip or, you know, you start to build your own read. Are there any like cold read techniques these mediums do that are like where they use sort of tells that they've seen over and over again? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Like watching somebody's, uh, watching somebody's reaction to hearing information is, is huge. Like if you can, if you can like, and you'll notice like sometimes they'll like speak a little slower, uh, like especially when they're like first starting out, they're like, I'm getting a letter, maybe like an M and then somebody's like eyes will like kind of open a little bit. And then that, then they can zero and like they smell that blood a little bit. Uh, and same, same with if somebody is, uh, like if you notice that somebody is like, you know, arms crossed and not being receptive to it, they're going to pivot from them pretty quickly because uh, especially, especially in like these big group settings and stuff like that, you're going to have uh, like the, the numbers are so large that you can pretty much do whatever you want and you can always pivot to somebody and, and keep people hooked in. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder for the one-on-one things, but there are, I mean, you, you also can't discount technology. Like, there's no way of knowing. And for a lot of times, like these TV shows and stuff like that, you've got people in the back rooms, like Googling stuff and finding, like searching all of the, uh, all of the guest names and things like that uh, off of like the ticket registration to be like, okay, like 
do I, do these people's names pop up in any obituaries, uh, survived by Denise? And you'd be like, great. Like, uh, the grandpa's name is Ronald. Try to get that out there somewhere. Can I, can I tell you a story that happened to me? Uh, sure. so I was once flying, uh, going on a plane, uh, me and my daughter were going on the, on, on the plane together and the, the airline sent me a confirmation email the day before. And by accident, I don't know how this happened, but purely by accident, they sent someone else's confirmation email to me. And so, but they just sent a last name, like Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so or something like that. And so I had to Google the area I was in, um, the town I was in, and figure out who, it was like a, you know, it was like a first-class confirmation. So I had to figure who maybe is like a businessman or a doctor who was traveling for business. And I narrowed in on one family that it could be. And I figured, okay, it's this one woman is probably the person they're referring to. And so my daughter thought I was crazy. I spent like four or five hours researching and memorizing everything by every fa- about every family member I could find who lived in this town or New York, because I was flying back to New York, uh, related to this woman. So I memorized like her parents' um, addresses and birthdays and their whole biographies, like everything I could find about them in newspapers.com and Google (laughs) and stuff like that. And so then the next day, my daughter and I were in the first class lounge and the woman walks in. I I guessed correctly on the family, but she was dropping off her dad who was actually taking the plane. But fortunately, I had researched everything about her dad. And, and then the odd thing was, uh, the, the dad walks straight towards me and says, oh, James Altucher, I listened to your podcast. And, <laughs> and, and then I'm talking to him for a while. And then I say, you know, every now and then, uh, I get this strange feeling. And I just feel this urge right now to give you my passport. So I give him my passport. And he's like, and he's like kind of looking confused. And I say, can you just open it up and read my birthday out loud? And so he opens my passport up and he's like, huh, we have the same birthday. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Uh, the January, you know, whatever. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, we have the same, we have the same birthday. That's, that's so odd. And, and, but then and my daughter always tells the story because then, then the weirdest thing happened. Then he just gave me back the passport. He said, well, it's nice meeting you. And then he just walked away. <laughs> and so my daughter is like, what the hell just happened? Because only in his head, only two things could have happened. Either I had just proved the existence of God and psychic powers, or <laughs> I obsessed for some random reason, I knew he was going to be on this plane and obsessively researched everything about him. And that's the only two choices he could have ha- possibly have had. And both were very odd choices like both were, uh, were unbelievable choices but he just sort of like walked away uh, to be fair a few days later he did email me and say hey it was nice meeting you that was a really strange coincidence blah 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 but he didn't have like this overreaction like oh my gosh that's amazing so you're right sometimes things can happen where you can put together in this case it was a prank obviously it wasn't being a you know i wasn't trying to charge him money or scam him or anything but uh uh my daughter was impressed that I had prepared so elaborately for a, a prank that I did pull off successfully <laughs> and still did not get a reaction. <laughs> so, that is really funny. Yeah. I, I like that he deadpanned it a little bit. Yeah. He told it like, what would you think if someone came up to me like that and said, 
but you know, cause there's no way I could have known him. He was like an eye doctor and there's no way. And, and when we were in some random town in the United States and there's no way I could have known him the way he knew me, but maybe somehow he felt I knew him because he knew me. Maybe there was something there. I don't know. Um, but cause you never know how the brain works with these things. That's, it's that's a shocking true. thing. Maybe he was like in just some sort of denial. Uh, yeah. I, I wonder a little bit about that. I also like, cause your platform is like so big and like, I mean, there's hundreds of hours of you like speaking on your podcast. So like sometimes like when I listen to podcasts, like I feel like I have to like, remember that I'm not like hanging out with friends. Like if I have headphones in, uh, so yeah. maybe it's like one of those things where like he felt like he knew you a little bit more and it seemed less weird because he had listened to your show so much. Right. That combined with the cognitive dissonance of, uh, you know, this is just too unbelievable. So he must have some sort of like master list of all the people who listen, which I don't, <laughs> of course. And uh, uh, but it was it was just kind of funny. It's funny because even yesterday, my this happened years ago. My daughter and I were were recounting the story yesterday, so that's why I was thinking about it. But uh, uh, do any of these psychic mediums tell you, "Hey, this is just a show; it's just entertainment"? Meaning, like they know that they're kind of scamming the person. Yeah, a lot of times, like especially like the the television ones and like the the big time operations, like but pretty much all of them are going to say like somewhere in the like somewhere in their thing for entertainment purposes only. But, but they must have an origin story. Like, oh, I like was hit in the head and when I was a kid and ever since I was able to see ghosts or something like that. Oh yeah, they all, like a lot of them have that or like it's just like born or like passed through generations. Like there's, there's always like some sort of, some sort of story like that. So, so how do you steal a diamond from the, the most secure underground safe diamond center the antwerp diamond center I, I, is this like uh what was the movie that made by the train crashing guy um uh, uh, snatch yeah snatch it's almost like that uh it's a bit like that it's actually this is one of my favorite heist stories ever because it's it's like the perfect comedy. It, it should be a Guy Ritchie movie. Like if I write a heist movie, it's going to be this movie because the level of expertise and genius that you needed to, to pull this off. And then the way that like the undoing happened, it's, it's amazing. So basically there was this master thief named uh, Leonardo Notobertolo. He had been arrested a few times previously for, uh, for gem theft and things like that. But he also, he rented an office in the Antwerp, Diamond Center, which is like kind of like the Diamond District in in New York City, um, where there's all of the all the diamond merchants within a couple blocks of each other. Which is very secure, by the way. You can't get in to see a diamond dealer. You have to go through like two doors that are you know heavy, several inches of steel each door, and you go in one. Then you're in this tiny little room that's locked on both sides until they buzz you in into the next door. So they pretty much have you each step of the way and you can't leave either exactly and so like it's a similar situation in antwerp where all of these diamond dealers like they had a like a shared vault where they would all like stash you know their diamonds and safe deposit boxes and and things like that for for like weekends and and off hours and so uh leonardo actually rented a safe deposit box in this vault so he had access to go in and out every day as much as he wanted and he could kind of take notes of the surveillance systems and things like that and the security measures on this vault were really good like uh 
they used what's called a defense in depth technique, which is layering of multiple different security features. So this particular vault had about 10 security features. You had cameras on the inside, you had light sensors, motion sensors, like a magnetic sensor on the door so that if the door cracked like even half an inch, like that magnetic seal was broken and that triggered an alarm. There were cameras, there were guards. Uh, there was a foot and a half steel door with 17 million possible combinations. And then each of the safe deposit boxes had like another like 15,000 possible combinations to open those boxes. And so it was, it was pretty secure. Like I, I think a reasonable person would say, yeah, that's, that's very safe. And so uh, Noto Bertolo, he actually had this, this team of thieves uh, that called themselves the School of Turin, uh, which is just a great name, because like, yeah. they were from Turin, Italy. And basically, they, they build like a fake vault, and they start practicing, like, how to, like, can we open these boxes? Like, can we build something that's going to open all these safe deposit boxes? And can we do it in the dark? Because if we turn on the lights, the alarm goes off. How are, they play, how are they even going to get in the vault, though? Uh, so there's actually, um, there's actually a few ways that they, they had to do this. So he actually, uh, and also there's like a foot and a, la- a, foot and a half long key uh, that's like, and it's like a foot and a half of like, you know, dips and valleys and stuff like that. It's like teeth for the key. It's very complex key. Uh, and they have to reproduce that as well. Uh, and so basically what he does is he puts in like some pinhole, like uh, one day he goes in with this pen camera, like in his shirt lapel. And he gets like a video of like the walkthrough so they can measure dimensions and things like that. And then he puts another, uh, another like little pinhole camera, like by the, uh, by the vault door. Uh, so he's, ab- they're able to actually like see somebody like put the combination in. So they get, uh, they don't have to, it's no longer 17 million combinations. They have, the, they have the numbers. And so there's only like four combinations of those numbers. And then uh, the day before the heist, uh, he actually, and he gets like a key forger uh, called the King of Keys to, uh, to make a copy of this foot and a half long key. And then the day before uh, they actually plan the heist, he goes into the vault to like close out his box, takes a can of hairspray, like a little travel bottle, from his uh, pocket and sprays the motion detector. And that hairspray creates a film that blocks it from detecting motion, uh, which is pretty, pretty but, ingenious. But wouldn't there be just physical guards 24-7? Uh, there were not on, on weekends because they thought that the vault was so secure. And um, I, I would think also, like, having a, a shared vault of, of basically, you know, all these diamond dealers who don't really know each other and they're keeping their most priceless diamonds in these safe deposit boxes, that doesn't feel like the most secure thing. It seems like an invitation for someone like this to come in. Exactly. And so now, like, I think, I imagine that they would have to have, like, some guard on 24-hour rotation. But at the time, they didn't um, because they just, they didn't think they needed to. And he actually planned it for a three-day weekend uh, that was actually, like, a high Jewish holiday. So he knew that it was, like, especially unlikely that people were going to go to the uh, to go there because, you know, they were religiously prohibited from, from leaving their house. Um, and, and yeah, so basically um, they go ahead and him and his team get access to a courtyard. Uh, they climb a ladder. There's a security camera that they disable with like a, a velvet bag, like a crown royal bag. And then they're able to go down like the back door and, uh, and into the vault room. 
And then from there, uh, they actually found like that foot and a half long key. Like they just kept it in a supply closet next to the, uh, next to the vault. So they didn't even have to use the replica. And then they were able to, uh, actually, this might be the smartest thing that they did for like the magnetic seal, right? Um, they actually took like a piece of aluminum and like taped it to the two magnet sensors and then unscrewed it and stuck it to the wall with like two-sided tape so that that magnetic seal never broke uh, because it wasn't attached to the door anymore. And then from there, they were able to enter the combination, uh, pick the lock for like the second grate inside the vault, and then they could start working on the boxes. Uh, and they, they also did it completely in the dark and uh, they put like styrofoam coolers over the light and motion detectors just to make sure that nothing got detected. And they were able to also, like, they had an electronics guy bypass the alarm. Uh, and then they were able to steal hundreds of millions of, of diamonds like that. And did they get away with it? Uh, for the most part, they, they did. Like, basically, this is, this is, like, the undoing. And this is, like, my favorite part of the story. Um, so after they, after they steal the diamonds, they, like, load everything up. And they start driving. And Nota Bartolo and then one of his accomplices, this guy named Speedy, are driving back to Turin. Uh, so like leaving Belgium and driving back to Italy. And they've got like the bag of like all of the evidence, uh, like receipts, tapes, things like that. And like basically the plan is that Noto Bartolo is going to like go find a, a spot to burn it, but his accomplice like freaks out and he's like, we got to get rid of this now. Like if we get pulled over, we're done. And so he like basically makes him pull over in the middle of the country and like dumps the bags and stuff like he's like what are you doing like let's burn this and like meanwhile the guy's just like ripping the bags open in a panic and so there's a bunch of trash and they try to collect it and then they're like this is like remote enough nobody will ever find it and the next day like the farmer that owned that land was walking through and he sees you know envelopes that said like antwerp diamond center and he calls the police and then they're able uh they were able to basically find some of the evidence uh, because there's like a half-eaten salami sandwich in the garbage and like a receipt for salami. And then they were able to basically use that receipt to find uh, surveillance tapes of like nearby delis and find like the guy buying the salami. Uh, and then from there, they were able to kind of roll him over to get the rest of the crew. Wow. So do they, but you're saying they didn't recover all the diamonds? No, they did not recover most of the diamonds. But couldn't they say, hey, we're going to put you in jail for life unless we come up with all the diamonds? They, they could, but uh, Europe actually has, like, surprisingly lax, uh, like, for nonviolent crimes. Like, I think the biggest sentence that anybody got was, like, eight years. So they figured, okay, I'll do my time, even if it's the full eight years, and then I'll have 10 million bucks when I get out. Oh, yeah, probably more than that, even. Like, probably, like, the, because safe deposit boxes are notoriously underreported. Like they think that it was about a hundred million dollars, but it probably could have been like up to half a billion dollars because wow. people typically don't report everything that's in safe deposit boxes because they want those contents to be hidden and secret. And in jail, you would think they might be in trouble because would the other people in jail want to, you know, get access to, well, no, they could just say, Hey, they took everything from us. Yeah, pretty much. Like that's that's the the story that they do in jail, and they have to make the cops think that they, uh, you know, got everything as well. And then afterwards, they they can go back to wherever they've like hidden their stash. Yeah. So, but yeah, what a stupid mistake though to just leave like Antwerp Diamond Center envelopes 
on you know ran, in a random place. Yeah, it's it was just such bad luck because like if they would have picked any other spot to dump the trash like that, like this farmer that found it had had like it was like kind of like a good trash dumping spot. And there were like a group of kids that constantly dumped trash there. So he was like, I bet this is those damn kids. And then he goes out to see if they've dumped more trash. And that's when he sees that somebody else had dumped like evidence of the heist of the century. And did, did um, the main guy, did he go back to work? So it's not to arise suspicions and that's how they caught him or did he disappear? Uh, so he did try to go back to work. Like he, he ended up actually getting caught with uh, like on his way to his family and his family knew the deal because like his wife and her, uh, her brother uh, and I forget who else it was like a cousin, I think like they, they rolled up like all the, all the carpets and stuff like that and like emptied their apartment. And like, they, they got caught by like five minutes. Like if they would have been a little quicker, they would have been gone by the time the police got to their door. Now I wonder who gets away with a heist and then lives, where, where do they go? Let's say you're this guy. Where do you go and, you know, hide and change your identity? Like, who's never caught? That's, I mean, that's a good question. I feel like, I feel like there's not a real way to know that because if, if I've heard of them, then they've been caught. Uh, but but I, I think that, I mean, there's a lot of places um, within Europe and stuff like that where, there's just generational wealth where I think you could, you could do like, I, I would go to Italy or some, someplace like that probably. And or just maybe, like, like a small town where you'll stand out, but it's not like the police will be looking there. Exactly. And then I, I find like, as long as you only break one law at a time, then you're typically fine. Like that's kind of like my golden rule for that. Cause a lot of these guys are heisting and then they're also like doing something else done and that's what gets them caught. Now, so like, Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I, that's, that's what I had. If you were if you were to do a heist, what would you what would you do? Probably in the cybersecurity space. Yeah, I would probably go cyber at this point. Um, but that's that's tough to know. Like, it would either be cybersecurity or uh, like I might go after like some Bitcoin wallets and stuff like that. Like that would probably be a pretty. And, and, and people think that these things are like, like hacks, like, you know, for some sophisticated computer stuff, but probably what you would do is some social hacking. Yeah, there would definitely be some social engineering. Like I'd probably find somebody that had a, uh, like a Bitcoin wallet and send them, you know, some sort of like phishing email. And if they click on it, then I've got like a keystroke logger. Now I can like, when I see something that looks like a Bitcoin wallet, I can go on all the exchanges and, and see like, can I open this wallet? Uh, and yeah, like if, if you have a, a keystroke logger on someone's computer, that means, you know, every key is being sent to you basically. And from what I understand, they're, they're very hard to detect, right? Like how would you detect, if I'm, how would I detect if there's a keystroke logger on my computer right now? So unless you, like your best bet is to use some sort of advanced malware protection, like Malwarebytes or, um, or whoever, um, whatever company you, you trust, like they, they tend to be my favorite, but Windows Defender is also like great. Um, and they're going to look for, like if you're using a known logger or a known piece of malware, they can actually search by the, uh, by the signature, like the, the hash signature of that and be like, okay, this is identified on our list of bad, bad software. But if you like make something from scratch, like there's really, unless you're like monitoring all of your like traffic packets and stuff like that, and you see like, all your data is suddenly going to this weird IP address, like you're really not going to know. 
Yeah, and also it could be rerouted through multiple IP addresses and then just end up at the same destination and put back together again. And right, so you just send to an email. Uh, and is it that easy? Once they click on a link, a keystroke logger is, could be downloaded to their computer? Yeah, definitely. Like there's there's a bunch of stuff. Like it's all of this is going to depend on the security knowledge of of your victim. Um, but I could I could put like a keystroke logger into like an Excel spreadsheet um, and like just have it run as a macro, which is like a script that runs in the background. And then I could send it to you and be like, hey, James, like here's my, uh, my calendar for availability if you want to do my podcast. And when you open that to like fill out your date, uh, that keystroke logger is running in the background. Man, I am never going to click on any link ever again from anybody. <laughs> that's, um, that's fair. Like there's definitely ways that you can like protect yourself. So like you can disable macros from running automatically on your machine, which I highly recommend. Um, and then also like hover over links and stuff like that. And if it's, if it's supposed to be like a LinkedIn invite, but it's going to like, you know, some domain that ends in .ru or something like that, like don't, don't click on it. What, um, uh, uh, what percentage of computers do you think have keystroke loggers on them already? That's, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to say 1%, but it's probably higher than that. Um, right, and that's, here's another question then. What percentage of companies are invaded by bots, like bot armies? I would say 75%, probably. So, so that means every computer in some company has like small little programs that are ready to do, they're, they're like sleeper cells. They get the signal and then millions of computers will start like, you know, doing some sort of denial of service attack or whatever. Yeah, I mean... Um, so some companies will will definitely have stuff like that, but a lot of times, if somebody is trying to do something to a company as opposed to like a, a private individual, like most of these like uh, like botnets and stuff like that uh, are going to be a lot of like individual users and stuff like that as well. But like if you're in a company, like a lot of times, like if you're if you're targeting that company specifically, you're probably trying to uh, to do like escalation of privileges. So I might be able to get like you know a bank teller's uh, like stuff at Chase, and then I'm trying to figure out like how can I get like into their manager's account now, and how can I get to like the people with like the access to to open the doors that I want opened. Um, I think a lot of times like if it's an unsophisticated botnet, then you might see them on, on people's uh, computers and things like that, used as weapons against like other targets, like a DDoS, like you were saying. But a lot of times if it's like, if that tar- organization is being targeted for a purpose, then they're going to be a little more subtle about it. And uh, what, what's, have you ever done any of these bug bounties where you get like, you know, companies say, hey, hack us and you get $1,000 or, you know, is that, is that a viable way for a good cybersecurity expert to make some side hustle money? Uh, it's, I mean, it's definitely a way to make some money. I don't like there's, and there's definitely some people that are like really gifted and talented with code that, that do make a living like selling bug bounties or, uh, or things like that, or like finding zero days and then, you know, selling them back to the company instead of putting them on like the dark web or something like that. I've looked at a couple, but I've never actually been like the person to, uh, to like complete one. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've, I've come like pretty close to a couple of, but then by the time like I realized, oh, this is like a repeatable like uh, error bug, by the time I like would report it, uh, somebody else had found it. 
All right. Well, well, Pete, this is all fascinating stuff. Your, your podcast, we only talked about a small number of episodes. We, we, you've done 35 episodes. You, you, you publish them about once a week. And uh, I'm sure you're going to keep doing this. You've got some, some great uh, episodes here. Crazy Eddie. I remember that one. That You have, the, you have uh, the King of Thieves about King Farouk of Egypt. Oh, here's one about uh, 1980s Miami. Guns, drugs, girls, anything you want could be yours. Uh, you have the Affair of the Diamond Necklace. I think I read a book about that one. Uh, so much, so much great stuff here. People should listen to your podcast. How's things going in general? You still, you, you mentioned you do a little bit of comedy during this lockdown, but now you're pretty much focused on the podcast. I am. I'm. I'm working on like my podcast and my book. Things are things are going well. And thank you, by the way, for like the the glowing recommendation there. Um, but yeah, things have been good. Like I've I've been really enjoying like being able to like stay in touch. Like I use the podcast as a way to like stay in touch with friends. So I'll like bring them on so we can like talk for a couple hours. Oh, that's great. Uh, and it's it's been a lot of fun. And then like I uh, the podcast got picked up for a book, so that's going to be out in fall of next year. And so now. Uh, if I'm not researching episodes, I'm researching more cases uh, for the book that I can like turn into episodes. Oh, congratulations. So that that's a really great, like people don't understand that monetizing a podcast is not just about having ads on the podcast. Like ads, if you can get them at best are like break even, no matter who the podcast is, unless it's like Joe Rogan or whatever. But there's other ways like turning a podcast into a TV show, into books, into consulting or or talks or whatever. Like you could give a TED talk about, you know, con men or whatever. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of ways you could monetize. Definitely. Definitely. I actually, it's, uh, it's funny cause I, I listened to your, um, your side hustle Friday about like monetizing podcasts. And then, uh, there were a couple of them like, I'm already do- like, okay, I'm looking, I'm doing okay. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was good to, good to hear. And, and, and finally, where, where did you serve? You were a veteran or you are a veteran. Where, where did you serve? Uh, so I served two years in Afghanistan, a year and a half in South Korea, and then uh, the rest of my seven and a half years was split up between Fort Knox in Kentucky and uh, Fort Hood in Texas. Did you steal all the gold in Fort Knox? <laughs> I, you know, I keep hearing that there's not actually any gold down there, but I like there's a golf course right next to it, and I've definitely accidentally hit the depository with a drive once. Oh, really? How do you know you hit the depository? Uh, I could see, like, because you're the. the uh, like, I think it's like the 12th or 11th hole, like uh-huh. the tee box is right next to it. And I could actually like hear it like, uh, Clank. like yeah. And like I've hit a bunch over the fence, but like, that was the first one that I've like really had a bad hook on. Huh. And, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, in Afghanistan, were you okay? You, you didn't get hurt or anything, obviously. Uh, I, I did not get hurt. I was, I was very lucky, but there were definitely like some, uh, like definitely like some days that were hairier than others. Yeah, I'm talking to um, uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw in a couple of days, and you know he's the congressman. Uh, he was a SEAL. He, he uh, he's, he's got the eye patch. He, um, he he describes in his book how he stepped on an IED and you know basically tore him apart. It's really you know yeah, really horrible. It, yeah, I, I got really lucky. I, I had some friends that weren't uh, that weren't as lucky as me, um, but it's definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I I can't imagine like. Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's like because I, I I can imagine it like because I've had like close calls, but like I can't imagine like going that step further and like being injured like that. Well, thank you for your service, and you know Pete Stigmeyer, uh, uh, host of the podcast. I can steal that.
when your book comes out, come back on the podcast. We'll talk more about scams and heists and um, what makes a good heister. Awesome. I'd love that. And I look forward to your, your screenplay on this as well. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem, Pete. Thank you for coming on. Thank you.